You're listening to the Hammer and Nigel Show. Let's get right into it. My name is Nigel Guy Relford, the gun guy filling in for Hammer. And when he fills in, we do the Ask the Gun Guy segment. You're a Second Amendment attorney. You're a licensed firearms instructor. I will turn it over to you, my friend. Awesome, man. We'll jump right into it. We got a bunch of callers, but uh, we're going to do two segments, right, Nigel? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so, yeah, yeah. You give calling. us a yeah, give us a call three one seven two three nine ninety three ninety three, and we'll try to get you on as well. But in the meantime, let's go to Michael. Michael, welcome to Hammer and Nigel. Hey guys, thank you so much. Sure. You're excellent. Okay, simple question. I'm a young guy, so maybe I have it wrong, but back when. They signed the Constitution. The Second Amendment was for invasions, right? That's why they put it in there. So shouldn't we? Uh, so shouldn't we keep it in case one does happen, like China? <laughs> Well, Michael, I mean, part of what you're saying is true. In that, I mean, look at what the Second Amendment itself says. So a well-regulated militia, and that's everyone, that's me and you, and the Supreme Court has ruled that, um, being necessary for the security of a free state. Necessary for the security of a free state. So are they talking about uh, the militia standing right next to the standing army like they did uh, in both uh, the War for Independence and War of 1812? Sure, they're talking about that, to your point. But the Supreme Court has looked at the historical development of not only the Second Amendment, but a lot of the founding documents around the writing of the Constitution. And they, and they found that they were also talking about, we're talking about security. We're also talking about the right to self-defense and the right to defend your home, and the right to defend your family. Um, and that's part of the Second Amendment as well, which is why we've got several Supreme Court opinions now that have come out and said a fundamental right protected by the Second Amendment is the right to defend yourself both in the home and outside the home, and that's part of that security of a free state. Are, are you living in a secure and free state if you can't defend your own life or defend your own home or your property? Of course not. So that's part of it as well. Let's get back to the phone lines. Bob is called. Bob, welcome to Hammer and Nigel. Yeah, thanks. Um, uh, well, I will definitely stand with any army uh, opposed to somebody trying to take us over. But my question is, I have a, uh, a, a double-barreled shotgun that was made in the 1870s. And... I was willing to convert it into a handgun, and the barrel is only 11 inches long. And uh, uh, my question is, uh, can I keep that gun uh, because of the age, or is it uh, useless to me because uh, the barrel is too short? Yeah, does it fire a fixed cartridge, Bob? Um, um, it, it, it fires 12 gauge, uh, shotgun shells. Okay. Um, then, then it, it doesn't meet a requirement to be a antique firearm, which means if it's a shotgun designed to be fired from the shoulder and, and then it's got to have a barrel at least 18 inches or it's a, it's an unregistered, uh, short barreled shotgun and you go to prison for 10 years for being in possession of that. Um, and the ATF uh, regulates this, and, and the rules actually say that once something's a shotgun, it's always a shotgun. 
So the fact that you could potentially, uh, you know, take the stock off of it or cut the stock down to make it quote unquote a pistol, it's still a shotgun because it started life as a shotgun. Uh, if it's designed to be fired from the shoulder, it remains a shotgun. So right now, since that fires a fixed cartridge and is a shotgun and has a barrel less than 18 inches, um, that's a violation of federal law, the National Firearms Act of 1934, and that's a very serious issue. Um, so that's not something uh, you want to play around with. Let's go back to the phone lines. Much is something like that worth, you think, from the 1800s? I'd have to see it. Yeah. I mean, um, it, if it's that old, it, I, I was kind of surprised that it fires a fixed cartridge. Um, so I don't know. I'm not. Right. I'm not sure exactly. It may be a piece of junk, or it may be a priceless artifact. I just don't know based on that discussion. Uh, Lee has joined us. Uh, Lee, welcome to Hammer and Nigel. Hi. I have a question about short-barreled rifles. Yes, sir. If I jump through all the hoops to get one, let's say in five five six, do I have to register it a second time if I get a different upper receiver and a different caliber? That is a great question. And the way the rules work under the NFA and the way the ATF interprets them is that once you register a short-barreled rifle under the NFA um, in a particular configuration, meaning you have to identify a caliber and a barrel length and all that, um, as long as you can readily convert that rifle back to what you registered with ATF, in other words, keep the original upper you know, uh, keep keep all the original components that allows you to reconfigure that back um, to what you registered. Then you can swap uppers. I mean, I I have a registered lower that I, I shoot 300 blackout. I'll put 556 on it. Um, you know, I'll put a, a longer barrel 556. I can I can swap that as long as I can reconvert it back to the original registered configuration. You're totally good to go. And Nigel, I think there we need to take a break, don't we? And do one more. Let's All right, let's do, do one, one more. more before we take a break. And again, join us, 317-239-9393. Chris, welcome to Hammer and Nigel. Hi, great uh, listening to you guys. Uh, first time caller. Uh, my question is, when you own a gun, you have to have a license to no. purchase it? No. Not in Indiana. Do you have to register the gun when no. you buy it? No, not in Indiana. Um, to okay. buy it to buy a gun from a dealer, you go into a gun store, you want to buy a gun, you have to pass a background check. Um, this is part of the Brady Bill. It's been around since ninety four. So you fill out a form, it's called a 4473, they call NICS, which is the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, run by the FBI out of Wheeling, West Virginia. Um, they do a background check on you, you pass the background check, you walk out with your gun. Um, then you're legal to possess that gun, and there is no further registration, quote-unquote, required uh, for that gun, either in Indiana or at the federal level, the gun store will keep that 4473 form. And they have to keep those. It's either 20 or 25 years. I always forget. Um, and they have to be in searchable format if the ATF ever wants to come to a trace um, uh, on a particular gun. They go back to the store where it was sold. They can figure out who the store sold it to. But there's no additional registration or anything else involved, Chris. All right, let's go right back to the phone line. Jerry's been on hold the longest at this point. Jerry, welcome to Hammer and Nigel. Hi, guys. I got a quick question and uh, appreciate it. Uh, if I'm getting married in September, I own guns. I've had a lifetime permit way before the law ever changed. But uh, my wife, my future wife, am I allowed to give her one of my guns to carry? Sure. She's never had a background check. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing about Indiana that separates us from some other states. Uh, we don't have 
quote-unquote universal background checks, which would require a background check as between private individuals. So the, the short answer, Jerry, is absolutely. Um, as long as you don't know her to be a prohibited person who can't buy a gun herself from a dealer, you know, like being a felon or domestic batterer or something along those lines, um, as long as you don't have that information and as far as you know she can legally possess a gun, you can lawfully give her a gun. Absolutely. And by the way, by the way, tough, man, uh, congratulations on getting married. Um, but eBuzz, eBuzz has called. He calls often. Uh, welcome back to Hammer and Nigel there. But by the way, I got to ask you a question. What's the E stand for? Eternal. <laughs> okay, eternal. But ah, ah. Okay, it all comes clear to me now. What? Yeah, what, there you what, go. What's your question, buddy? I want to know when are you going to put on a hands-on training for dummies? Ah, okay. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm uh, right now, Buzz. I'm only Buzz doing, is first to sign up. Yeah, <laughs> I'm only doing private classes as far as actual shooting classes now. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've taught the big group classes for almost 30 years. Um, and, and anymore, what I really enjoy doing, I can get a lot more done, um, is just doing uh, private classes with, with either one or two people by the hour, an hour, or maybe two. Um, people a lot of times schedule a separate uh, session to come back. I did, did one with, uh, with Casey Daniels, actually, here oh, not yeah. too long ago. And uh, she really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. So right now, I'm just doing private training. And you can uh, find opportunity to sign up for that. It's tactical-firearms.com. Just click on Upcoming Courses. And down below there, it says Private Training Available. Uh, back to the phone lines, we got Kenneth. Kenneth, uh, thanks for hey. your patience, man. What you got for Thank us? Thank you. Yeah, I was just wondering, is a concealed carry, um, if you have a concealed carry, is that also enable you to open carry? Yeah, well, and that's why we don't call it a concealed carry license, Kenneth, and I don't mean to nitpick you, buddy. Um, we know in Indiana, it's called a license to carry handgun. And we don't call it a concealed carry license for exactly that reason. Uh, before we had constitutional carry, it allowed you to carry concealed or carry openly. Um, and that's still true. But by the way, constitutional carry, which just means if you're a law-abiding citizen and you're not a prohibited possessor, you can carry a handgun without a license in Indiana. Um, and uh, and that is it, it also true of constitutional carry. That is, you can carry either openly or concealed. And uh, um, you don't uh, you, 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 we don't uh, we don't question whether somebody um, or we don't require someone, I should say, to conceal a handgun if they're law otherwise lawfully carrying uh, right back to the phone lines. We've got Jeff. Uh, we got a couple of Jeff's on hold. So, Jeff, one. Uh, what do you got for us, buddy? Hey, uh, I hope this is me. Uh, I'm, I'm curious what the difference is between the background check and the that you get when you purchase a gun and the background check they did when you got your permit to carry. Um, I, I don't, cause I, I guess it kind of tails into the whole, since you don't have to do that anymore and people are complaining, you know, what, what did that background check do that would have eliminated people? Well, it's a good question. And it, it is almost true that they're identical. In other words, um, only those people that would have been eligible for a handgun license are now able to carry under constitutional carry. But I say almost true. That's not quite true. There are a couple of prohibitors in terms of getting a handgun license that don't make you a prohibited possessor for buying a gun, a gun or possessing a gun um, or carrying under constitutional carry. 
so for instance, the um, uh, one about there, there was this one that I, it always bothered me because it was so nonspecific. Um, it didn't require any kind of a conviction. It said if there's documented evidence which would give rise to a reasonable suspicion that you have a propensity for violent or emotionally unstable conduct. So it doesn't require a conviction. And what the hell does emotionally unstable mean? So if they may go out and they, sometimes I've seen cases and I've, I've handled these where someone might have had a couple of arrest, uh, arrests for, for battery um, that got dismissed. And they say, well, you got arrested twice for battery in a six-month period or one-year period. You must be violent. Well, is that true? Or were they falsely accused? Uh, one guy was a bouncer. So, yeah, I've been a bouncer. And, yeah, I got some battery arrests involved in that. Um, and, and yet I, I hear I have no criminal history today. So, um, the, but, but short answer is there are some things that will get you rejected for a handgun license where you can still buy a gun and pass that background check. But not very many and nothing very serious, because for the most part, when we passed constitutional carry, uh, we made it a requirement, essentially, that you couldn't be a prohibited person uh, under state or federal law. And that's why there's such huge overlap. we got time for one more night. 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Quick. Let's go to Jeff number two, man. you got about 12 seconds to get your question out. <laughs> okay, well, I'll try to get it to you real fast. Okay. Um, I have... Oh no! Uh, we lost Jeff. Uh, uh, nah, he's gone. No, he's like, okay, ten seconds, Mike. <laughs> what do you got? Hey, I just wanted to uh, cap and ball and black powder. Do they require anything at all? The way I understand the the law is anybody can have one. And well, yep, the thing I'll, I was wondering it, is if it makes a difference if it's an antique or a new manufacturer. Well, it can be a replica, but it still has to meet the definition of an antique firearm. Look that up. Google it. ATF antique firearm. That'll give you a lot of information.